Excellent. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 3. Genesis 3. You can find us on page 3 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. We were going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and now we've come to God's dealing with the devil, then with Eve, and then with Adam, we've slowed down. We've slowed down. We're focusing in verse by verse because the consequences of the fall, of the rebellion, are impactful of every person and everything. So we're seeing the consequence of sin from this point. So we're slowing down to take a look at each of these. So today we're focusing in on verse 16, on what happens with Eve. Chapter 3, verse 16 will be the focus. But... Before that, I'm going to just catch us back up. And I'm going to start at verse 10. So Genesis 3, verse 10. I'm going to start reading from there. So just before this, Adam and Eve, they took of the apple or the fruit. We don't know if it's apple. They took of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, ate of it. Then shame, guilt, sin entered in, and they ran and hid. So here is where God comes to meet them in the garden. Verse 10. He answered. This is Adam. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We are grateful that though we have fallen into sin, though we have rebelled against you, Though we have said we'd rather do our way than your way. That you would send your son so that we could have forgiveness in life. Father, we pray that you'll just guide us in this time through the power of your Holy Spirit. Guide us into your word. Guide us into your truth. Give us discernment and wisdom now. 
In Christ's wonderful name, amen. Amen. So we are focusing in on the one verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Get a better understanding of the consequences here and how this deals with each and every one of us. We see where first the Lord turned his attention to the devil, the serpent, the snake, the one who came and deceived. And now he's turning his attention to the woman, to Eve, the one who was deceived, the one who took and ate and gave to her husband. So we're going to have a better understanding here of, of this. And there's kind of two parts to this verse two parts. So this is the first point and the second point. The first point we're looking at is where God says he will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then the second part of this is your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So we're going to be looking at these two, ver- these two aspects of this verse and what that means. Now, when we looked at God's judgment of the snake, remember the devil comes and takes the form of a snake to tempt Eve, to deceive her, and to bring about Eve's and Adam's rebellion and disobedience. God is going to make an example of this snake. That snake will crawl on its belly. So that whenever you see a snake slithering, you'll be reminded that that is a form of God's judgment. That the Satan, the devil, will ultimately be defeated. And just like that, the snake always shows itself in defeat. In the dust of the ground and crawling. So that is a living reminder to remind you every time you see a snake you are reminded that God has made his judgment and that ultimately he will send his son, Jesus Christ. And though Jesus' heel will be bruised, though he will face suffering and persecution and opposition, and though he will die on the cross and take the sins of God's people and bear God's wrath, that ultimately he will rise again. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. So Jesus will be wounded, but Jesus will show himself victorious and live eternally through that. But remember what God sold to the serpent, that Jesus' heel will be bruised, but what will happen to the serpent's head? He'll be crushed. He will be defeated. He will be destroyed. So we see that, and whenever we see the snake, oh, it's to remind us of that. It's to put that truth deep into our hearts and deep into our minds. So here again, as we look this Sunday at God speaking to the woman, and then Lord willing, next Sunday when God speaks to the man, we're going to see more effects of the fall, and these are gracious things. These are gracious things. These are 
reminders. These are to focus our hearts and minds on the truth of our need for a Savior and on God's promise of deliverance. So these are, these are reminders. These, again, are living reminders of God's grace and work in our life. Well, the first one, as I said, in verse 16a is this. Multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Now, we understand that blessing, being fruitful and multiplying, is part of the blessing. We saw this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, where God makes them in his image. He makes them male and female. Male and female are both in God's image. And he tells them, he blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And that they will have dominion. They will be able to subdue the earth because they are his image bearers and they are above everything else in the created order on this earth, that they are to have dominion and everything is to be subject to them. So that they're blessed, fruitful and multiply. But we also understand that before the fall, there is no death, there is no sin, there is no disease, and there is no pain. No pain. So we see this is new. This where God says in verse 16a, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. This multiplying isn't saying that Eve had pain before this and he's just going to make it worse. No, the way this is saying multiply and in pain you shall bring forth children, this emphasizes that this is something that is new, that is coming in, and that is drastic and dramatic. This is a very strong pain. That will come about. So now we see something new. Just as when Adam and Eve first took and ate of the forbidden fruit, we see where shame and guilt enters in and hiding and fear from God. Now we see where pain is introduced. So now we see this for the bringing of children, the giving birth to children, and the raising of children, there will be pain involved in all these things. Now we see where pain comes in, where sorrow comes in, and then you do not get far into Genesis where you see the incidents of Cain and Abel, and you see where murder and death enters in for the first time. So here we're seeing the effects of sin and the fall. But first we see this instance of pain this instance of pain. And again, this is an ongoing reminder, a reminder of the fall and a reminder of our need of a Savior. And this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. When God no longer reminds you of your need of a Savior, when He just lets you go on and no longer has any involvement of drawing you or bringing you into loving fellowship with Him. That is the ultimate act of God's judgment and hardening and letting you go your own course to destruction. So just the very fact here that God is placing these reminders that we would cry out to Him and call out to Him. We see His grace 
even woven into these very judgments that will take place. We see this throughout Scripture, and we ultimately see that even though in the midst of this pain and sorrow of giving birth to children, that pain is temporary. The Scriptures say once the mother holds that child in her arms, that she forgets about the pain and she has the joy of the new child. This ultimately points us to the one child, which will be Jesus Christ. Remember the promise. The promise is, and her offspring. There will be a boy born, a male who will be born, who will come and give his life, who will take the curse, and who will crush the serpent's head. Eventually, and God will do this through the woman through giving birth. And we see there pointing to the virgin birth and the promise of Jesus Christ. We saw that promise in Genesis 3.15. And we see this in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 is the fulfillment of this. That ultimately, no matter how painful the, the bearing of children are, through a birth will come the Savior, the one who will come to take away the curse and our sins. And we see this in Galatians 4. In Galatians 4, starting at verse 4, it says this. But when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, God is sovereign. Everything happens ultimately according to his will, his timing, and his plan. God does nothing that is evil. All that God does is good and perfect and holy. Yet he even allows and uses all things to bring about ultimately his sovereign plan for his good and perfect. So we see this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So we see Jesus Christ, a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. So he sends his eternally begotten son. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. There's the promise. There's the promise. So even for Mary, in the midst of the pain of giving birth to Jesus, she's giving birth to the promise. Here it is. Born of a woman. Born under the law. And remember, anyone who does not obey the law perfectly is under a curse. So Jesus was born under the law. But Jesus did something that none of us did. Jesus was perfect. He did not break one law, one command. He did nothing wrong or disobedient in thought, word, or action. This is amazing. This is amazing. I encourage each and every one of you, try to make it an hour without doing something wrong in thought, word, and action. Now think of Jesus Christ. 33-some years. There wasn't a second, there wasn't one moment that he did anything wrong in thought, word, and action. It's beyond our understanding. Beyond our comprehension, but that's who Jesus was. 
So he fulfills the law. And that's what verse verse 5 says. To redeem those who were under the law, under the curse, under condemnation, under God's judgment. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. The most dear, intimate term. We can refer that to God because we have been made right through Jesus Christ. His sacrifice on the cross, his perfect obedience to God, and his resurrection. So that's how we see ultimately that this pain of birth giving ultimately is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. And we see where in the midst of that pain, the joy of redemption and forgiveness is found. And that's my third point on this one is Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, from the curse of judgment, from the curse of opposition to him. And again, this is Galatians 3. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's amazing. The curse is removed. God's condemnation is removed. The judgment we deserve is removed. And we can look forward to eternal life, restoration with God, true life, life of love, life of grace, life of mercy, eternal life. We can look forward to this because Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty of our sins and we are set free set free so this is the good news this is the good news and that painful birth birth after birth from adam to cain on up to this very day and until christ returns that pain is to be a reminder a reminder that God sent his son, born of a woman, and that ultimately when Christ returns, then and only then will there be no more pain, no more suffering in the new heaven and new earth. So that's a reminder of that. That's why in 1 Timothy 5.15, it says this, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, it isn't saying that women are saved by having children because not all women have children. And even those who have children, just by having a child doesn't save you. But what it's saying there, 1 Timothy 2.15, is it's pointing back to this truth that ultimately of the woman would come Jesus Christ And any woman who is in Christ, even though she still faces the effects of the judgment through pain and child, giving birth to a child, 
where she is saved is this, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, with their eyes fixed on Jesus, believing in his love, in his forgiveness, and his grace. So there we see the curse is overcome by Jesus' grace and glory and love. So that's the first part. But the second part of the verse, verse 16b, is this. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire, your desire. What, what desire is this? What kind of desire? Now, we understand that before the fall, before the rebellion, before Adam and Eve chose to do things their way rather than God's way, that there was good desire, that there was proper desire. So it isn't a wrong thing for a husband to desire his wife and a wife to desire a husband. So we have to understand what kind of desire is this talking about is now because of the fall, because of sin, that is going to be an issue. So if we understand the good desire there was before the fall, first of all, remember, male and female are both in God's image. We see that in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. And God created them in his image. He created them male and female. And we see this emphasized again in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. That in Christ, anyone who is baptized in the Christ, anyone who puts on Christ, there is no longer Jew, Greek, slave-free, male or female. Those distinctions when it comes to the promises of Abraham, the promises of being an heir of salvation, the promises of forgiveness, of blessing, of eternal life, of the Holy Spirit coming and empowering you and enabling you to give God glory, those promises go to everyone who believes in, who is baptized in and puts on Jesus Christ. So that's the fulfillment, and that points back to that original male and female are in God's image. And also we see where God told Adam and Eve before the fall to be fruitful and multiply, to have that good and right proper desire within that relationship for one another. So it can't be those things that are because of the fall. Those are what's good and proper in the original creative order. But as we go through this, we start seeing a part of the distinction. Remember how Adam's tune is very different before the fall and right after the fall. Just to remind you, this is, this is what Adam, Adam's reaction when he sees Eve, this is the man's reaction when he sees the woman after God has made her. Remember first in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. See, this beautiful relationship of the husband and the wife. She is his helper. He is to encourage and support and sacrifice and lift her up to God's glory. And she is to honor and respect and, and lift up her husband to God's glory. This beautiful relationship. This perfect fit. And here is Genesis 2.22. 
through 25. Here's the original statement that Adam had when he saw Eve. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man because she was taken out of man. Wow, he's pretty excited, wasn't he? This is good. This is, he's like, wow, this is wonderful. This is great. This is awesome. This is more than he could hope or imagine. And then you have this beautiful statement. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Hold fast. This is one of the most tender, beautiful expressions of, of a husband looking at his wife and just holding her tenderly in his arms, holding her close. The two become one. Just, just the greatest example of love and devotion and care for another person. So that's what should be. This is what is ought. This is what God establishes and lifts up in his word. But what happens after the fall? What, is, what tune is Adam singing then? The woman that you gave me destroyed me. What's going on? This is a very different song. This is a completely different station. There, there's, what's happened here? This is a complete breakdown of what was created. Adam and Eve. Eve is this helper for Adam. So we're getting a sense as we look at this is at what happens, this desire, this desire and rule over that comes out here. And to best understand this, you have to go a little further into Genesis 4. So Genesis 4 tells us these same exact words of desire and rule over. The next chapter. So remember, the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. The worst way to interpret Scripture is by what you think is best according to your culture or your interests or what you like. That's where you're on the dangerous path. But the best way to interpret Scripture is from Scripture. So here it is, the next chapter. We have the same exact Hebrew words, word for word, letter for letter, the same exact words, and here they're woven together. So here it is, Genesis 4. Verse 1, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the, here's the key, firstborn of his flock, the best of what he had. You see the difference in the heart motivation and intention of the offering. Firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. This is dangerous. Rather than his face being up looking to God, he is now inward, consumed with himself, consumed with his own anger and resentment and pride. This is danger. This is danger. This this is a dangerous place to be. So we see Cain turned into himself. And verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, now here's the warning, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you offer to me from your heart, from the best of what you have, I will accept it. I'll accept it. God knows the heart of the one offering. And if you do not do well, here it is. Sin is crouching at the door. Here it is. So think of your front door. And think of right outside of that front door, right there, right where you'd swing it open. There's the biggest, strongest ferocious dog or lion or tiger or bear and it's just there just growling ready to pounce so here it is so this is what god's telling him sin is crouching at the door it's here's the word desire is for you but you must what is it rule over it it's the same exact word same it's giving us the meaning of these words oh well here god just gave cain he warned him he gave him wisdom so obviously cain gave up his anger asked for forgiveness gave a good offering to the lord no i'm sorry to say that isn't what happened so verse eight cain spoke to abel his brother and when they were in the field Did sin get him? Yeah. What's so sad about this is Abel dies, but who is devoured? It's Cain. By his pride and his anger and his sin. It's it's the tragedy here is as much Cain as Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Sin ruled over him. Cain got devoured. He got destroyed. By that sin. So in Genesis, in the language here, in the Hebrew, in the contract context here, what we see as the effects of sin is this. And this is what's woven throughout the scriptures. Rather than the wife looking at her husband in respect and honor and in a loving submission to we see where the woman, where the wife looks to rule over, have authority over, be domineering over, to manipulate over. That's the complete reversal of the proper order. And rather than the husband 
looking to the wife to, to give himself, to hold on to her, to love her and cherish her. We love and cherish all kinds of things. I've seen people detail a car. Oh, it was perfect. Or scrub down a boat. Ooh, it sparkled. Or any numerous thing. And oh, it looked good. But oh, there was a lot of neglect of the wife. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, Danger. Danger. So this, when it talks about this cherish, oh, she gets the most of your attention and time and detailing and care. That's what it's talking about here. So rather than the the wife looking with respect and honor, we see the wife looking to domineer and be over and manipulate. And we see the husband rather than that sacrifice and that love and, and support, we see where sin comes in and the husband now ruling over in a sinful, domineering, oppressive way. That's sin. And that's what happens because of sin. But again, the good news is this. Jesus Christ frees us from that so we can live again the truth of what these relationships are supposed to be. And that's why I have Titus Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, in Christ, we are made new. We can live again to how God intends us to live. In Titus 2, it says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. You see that love, that care, that concern. And older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. Here it is, verse 4. To train the young women. What are they training them in? To love their husbands and their children. That love, that care, that respect. It's a beautiful thing. Same thing in 1 Timothy 2. Men should pray lifting holy hands without anger. None of that anger, none of that oppression, none of that abuse. That has no place in Christ. Get rid of that. That's, that isn't Christ. And what are women to do? Women are to love and respect, to learn quietly with all submissiveness, looking to the husband. That's the beautiful, complementary relationship of, of the woman perfectly fitting the man in all these areas. And this beautiful, because ultimately that's what Ephesians 5 says is the purpose of this marriage relationship is to sow Jesus and his church. That's what Ephesians 5.22 says. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You know, and men will hear that and go, uh-huh. Well, <laughs> be careful. Here's verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Where the women go, "Uh uh-huh. The wife is called to submit and respect. The husband's called to die. You see that here? Remember how Jesus loved his church? What did he do? Jesus so loved his church that he came and told the church it better serve him. 
<laughs> what did Jesus do for his church? He died. He sacrificed himself on the cross. That's love. That's holding, taking hold, and the two become one. That's what Christ does. So that's the good news. Even though we see where the fall comes and causes ruin and wrecking to the marriage relationship, we can see where Christ redeems and restores and lifts up the truth of what this is supposed to look like. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. And that's what we see in Scripture. But that's where Ephesians 5 ends. It says this. It says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Beautiful, beautiful relationship. And the reason why that points to Christ is this. Ultimately, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are the bride of Christ. Ultimately, if we are in Jesus Christ, that means that we realize that only in Him do we have forgiveness. Only in Him do we have grace and mercy and love. There is only one way of salvation, and it's Jesus Christ. Because in his perfect self, he went to the cross to take our sin, to take God's wrath that we deserve so that we can have freedom, adoption, and eternal life. And that's at the heart of what we remember and celebrate when we take communion. We remember that only by eating of Jesus' body, only by believing and trusting and living in him do we have life. Are we nourished for eternal life? And only by drinking of his blood, by acknowledging that we are sinners and his blood, only his blood cleanses us and washes us free of our sins. Only because of that are we made right with God. That's why this meal, when we take of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, is only for believers. This is for those who are in Christ. This is for those who are adopted children of God. So that's my hope and encouragement that everyone here who believes in Jesus Christ and knows him as your Savior, that you will partake knowing that Jesus gave his body on the cross so that you could be made alive. And he shed his blood so that every sin could be washed away and forgiven. As we enter into this time of communion, let us go to a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you would send your son. We are so grateful that you would make a way where we could have salvation forgiveness and your love could be displayed so perfectly on the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you will prepare our hearts and minds now. And I pray that everyone who is saved in you 
will lift up your gospel in thought, word, and action. In Christ's wonderful name, amen.